episode 460 of the Cyber Law Podcast, which is not a news roundup. Instead, while we are going to be talking technology, security, privacy, and government, I'll be talking it entirely with one person, Jimmy Wales, the co-founder of Wikipedia and still a major participant in Wikipedia's future. So without any uh, further ado, other than to say, of course, the opinions he and I are going to express are ours and not our institutions, clients, friends, families, or pets. Let's join the interview right away. All right. We are here with Jimmy Wales. Jimmy Wales is a towering figure in the history of the internet because he is the co-founder of Wikipedia and has stayed with Wikipedia for really going on 25 years, helping to guide it. And maybe even more significant to my mind is he's done that without becoming a billionaire, maybe not even a centimillionaire. And I want to explore that. But first, Jimmy, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Can you tell us how you started Wikipedia? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if we go back to the very, very early days, I was watching the growth of free software, open source software, as many people call it, and seeing programmers coming together to collaborate in new ways using the internet as a tool for collaboration. Uh, and I realized that kind of collaboration could extend beyond software into all kinds of cultural works and decided that an encyclopedia seemed like a good idea. So initially started a project called Newpedia, the predecessor to Wikipedia. But at the time, I didn't really know anything about building online community. I didn't really, you know, uh, it was just getting started. And so we organized a very top-down, seven-stage review process to get anything published. This failed. It was not much fun for volunteers, and it was very intimidating. And so then we switched to the wiki model, and wikis had existed for a while then. They were kind of a small underground phenomenon online, wiki just meaning a website that anyone can edit, and took the wiki software and adapted it to create Wikipedia. Uh, mm. And we got more work done in a month than we had in almost two years. So it was impressive. It's really interesting. I have to say, Richard Stallman is an enormous success as an inspiration, much less as an actual administrator of stuff. Yeah. People get mad at him. But his vision of uh, open software has inspired a lot of people. And clearly, what you did here is part of that. I also think of it, you know, I talk now and it's a little dismissive, but I say it with love. This was the, the age of internet hippies. And Wikipedia and maybe the Internet Archive are the two surviving institutions from the Internet hippie era. Much of the rest of the Internet has been taken over by Web 2.0. Yeah, no, it's true. We're we're old school and we like it that way. So Yeah, yeah. You went nonprofit very early. I guess it, it, partly since you were asking everybody to vol to be volunteers. Well, actually AOL made a bunch of money off of people who were volunteers administering their their chat rooms. Did you ever think about saying, well, why don't we take the structure of this, the software and the capabilities that brings everybody together and make that a profit a making business while the content is still provided by our volunteers? Well, I mean, no and yes. Yeah. So certainly for Wikipedia, no. You know, there was a lot of passion for the idea of being a charity because it's this idea of free knowledge for everyone and it's like a public library, a public utility. I did separately from Wikipedia set up 
uh, Wikia, which is now called Fandom, which is about the number 20 website online. All the content is written by volunteers. It's mostly pop culture fan websites, advertising supported, and it's been very successful. But that's, you know, a separate project. All right. But when I read about you online, you know, almost anybody who's famous, if you type in their name, the suggested search is net worth. And I couldn't help notice that the internet thinks that your net worth is about a million dollars. I'm not going to ask you what your net worth is, but is it true that you're not, you know, worth a hundred million dollars? That is definitely true. Definitely true. You know, the thing is, I mean, what's interesting about it is journalists love to ask me the question. I always love, you know, they say, how does it feel to not be a billionaire? I say, I don't know. How does it feel to you? Because you're not (laughs) either, you know? (laughs) But, you know, my life is super interesting. I, you know, I can meet anybody in the world, basically. And, you know, I travel a lot and do a lot of interesting things. And, you know, what I always say, I live in London. The number of bankers who live in London who make far more money than I ever will, who leave dreadfully dull lives, in my opinion, you know, I wouldn't trade it for a second. So Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think that that's completely understandable. It's not a choice most people make. So how come you came out of Alabama, but you've, I think you've become a UK citizen. What moved you in a direction that is so different from so many people who pioneered other parts of the infrastructure of the internet? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, certainly for me personally, I just, I wake up every day and I just try to do the most interesting thing I can think of to do. So that means I'm very lucky to have been successful because otherwise I'd be a hopeless employee. (laughs) And it's what I enjoy doing. Even now I'm always working on a, a new project, new ideas, playing around with what's the latest thing. And I just enjoy that. So how much of your time is spent? You're still on the board. You're emeritus chairman of Wikimedia, I think. How much of your time is actually spent trying to make sure that Wikipedia stays functional? Yeah, I mean, so it it depends on how we look at it. I mean, one of the things, and actually one of the reasons I was eager to come on this podcast, Cyberlaw, I spend a fair amount of time working with the public policy team, trying to talk to politicians and educate them about the internet and how it all works. That takes a big chunk of my time, which doesn't feel like directly working on Wikipedia. It's more just sort of helping defend the internet, so to speak. And then, you know, I also do work with the community and, you know, talk about ideas and, you know, sort of how can we make Wikipedia good and how do we maintain our sense of values over time. So, yeah, I spend a lot of time working on various... I can't believe you're doing that for fun, though, because I have been paid to do that, and really, (laughs) you can't pay me enough. (laughs) Well, yeah, the occasional meeting with politicians is a bit dreary, but I usually, I I kind of enjoy it, so... So that does kind of bring to to the fore some of the questions about law and Wikipedia. I, I noticed that you structured Wikipedia in an interesting way, that Wikimedia is not responsible for any of the actual content. That is the responsibility of the individual volunteers, which, if I remember right, you said we did that so that we could take advantage of Section 230. That is to say, you're not going to get sued for what some volunteer has said about somebody, and you've got a you know, a lot of bios in there, and somebody's bound to be upset about the true facts, let alone the the false things that might be said about them. Has that worked? Have you ever been sued about stuff that is said about an individual in in Wikipedia? 
No, I yeah, it's worked very very well. So I'm not I can't recall any case of anybody actually filing suit against us because it's kind of hopeless. But also because the community is very passionate about getting it right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, one of the great benefits to us in this time of all of the debate and discussion around Section 230 and responsibility and ethics of what you're doing is that we've always taken, in my view, a very sort of human dignity first approach to biographies to say, look, you know, we have a rule, anything negative in a biography must be sourced to a quality source. And if not, it should be removed immediately. So you don't, you know, if you come across something, you say, well, that's quite a, that's quite a negative thing to say about someone and it doesn't have a source. You don't just go to the talk page and start chatting about it. You remove it first. Uh, Uh, That's the first thing. And then chat about it. Whereas, you know, if it's an obscure, I don't know, historical building and you think there's an error, you you could probably just leave it there while you chat about it, you know? And so it's just things like that, that are, are really, really helpful that, you know, one of the things about what is difficult about content moderation for social media websites is, you know, there's a box in one form or another that says, what's on your mind? What are you thinking? And that would include uh, YouTube, for example, because there's a box where you upload your random video, whatever you just thought of to upload. Whereas with Wikipedia, there is no box that says, what's on your mind? You know, we have the article space, which is meant to be for encyclopedia articles, a neutral point of view with reliable sources. And then the talk pages aren't places to just go and talk about the subject. So if you go on to a controversial person's Wikipedia entry and you click on the talk page and you start ranting about that person, even if the community agrees with you to some extent or doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just like, well, that's not what we do here, right? If you want to go and rant about Donald Trump, you know, look, there's the whole internet to go do that. What we're trying to do is write an encyclopedia entry. So you need to, if you go on there, you need to say, you left out this fact about him and here's the source. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that just, that makes the moderation piece a lot easier, you know, and that's not to say people don't get into arguments and that those arguments sometimes turn unpleasant because we're human beings and, you know, people are like that. But we do have an ethos in the community that you really shouldn't be doing that. And if you do, you should apologize. And yeah, that works pretty well, actually. People are generally And do you, do you have a role in maintaining that ethos? Because my bet is that's more fragile than we really believe. That There um, needs to be somebody who's recognized as having authority, at least informal, who reminds people fairly frequently well, I, to keep it up. I, I, I think so. I do try to do that. I don't know how impactful it really is, but I don't think I should stop. And I certainly shouldn't say, oh, I'm sick and tired of all your nice conversations. Let's really have a fight. (laughs) You know, I don't think that would be healthy for the movement. But yeah, no, in general, I, I do think it's quite important. We actually have a lot of leaders in the community. So people who are very well respected in the community, and they've gotten there by being really good at conflict management, you know, sort of helping people work through difficult issues. I mean, we'll have, you know, the classic kinds of cases that we have will be a contributor who's doing really good work in in terms of the intellectual output, but they're also what I call fragile or brittle. They're very easily fly off the handle at people. And so, you know, sometimes there's no choice. That person actually has to be banned and invited to leave the project Uh, because they just can't behave themselves. But oftentimes it's just like good people come in and help them, you know, and say, look, 
you know, like actually, you know, just you go off and work and we'll deal with this problem and try not to get into conflict because not everybody is that kind of calm, friendly person. Right. So I wanted to go back to law on one point. There is such a thing in Europe as a right to be forgotten, Mm -hmm. which means that you actually have to take true facts about somebody out of their bio. And the underlying theory there is there are some true facts that people have outgrown or that are prejudicial in ways that maybe they're too prejudicial to to talk about. I, I mean, I'm an American, so I find the idea that there's some things that are too true hard to swallow. But what do you do with a true fact, maybe even a pretty damning fact that somebody says, well, you should take that down, or I'm going to go to uh, my local data protection authority and have you ordered to take it down? Well, that's never happened. It's certainly something that we would fight quite vigorously. I hope that it does never happen. But before the whole right to be forgotten thing, I was quite involved in, I joined this advisory panel for Google, and we went around and did sort of town hall meetings around Europe to hear different points of view about what should Google do about it, because it's a really hard problem for them. Right. Because that's really what it mainly is about is hiding links uh, in Google. And I believe, I haven't looked into this recently, but I know early on there were some links, some Wikipedia entries that were not linked to by Google, which I found sort of as a First Amendment type myself, pretty deeply troubling. But, you know, in terms of us directly being required to take out a referenced true fact, like we're just never going to do that. Like that's just never going to happen. And I think it would be incredibly unpopular with the public. I mean, I can imagine that really reopening the whole right to be forgotten debate in Europe. If I were to come forward and say, we're being ordered to take out this reference statement that's to a quality newspaper, you may have trouble finding it because you can't find it in Google anymore. And we're not going to take it down because it's true and it's, you know, it's encyclopedic and so on. Now, normally the kinds of things that people worry about, and actually this is the one of the problems with that law is, and people do defend it, but when normally when they defend it, they're defending a completely different kind of case. So the case would be, you know, a non-famous person who, you know, a revenge porn, that right. sort of thing. Right. So they did something when they were 18, they feel bad about it, and it's now being spread, and it's not newsworthy, it's not of public interest, and that sort of thing. I mean, the the biggest problem, like the original case that was put forward was a Spanish lawyer who had not paid his house taxes or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. And and wanted that to be removed. And I just thought, and I think, you know, I'm with you on this, I think. I'm like, actually, if I'm about to hire a lawyer, (laughs) it actually (laughs) tragically is important that he's probably should have paid his tax on time, you know, and I'm not really sure why, you know, and maybe that wouldn't prevent me from hiring that lawyer. But but you'd like to know. Worth knowing. I mean, depends on what, maybe, you know, if I'm, if he's advising me on my Speeding ticket, fine, or a big business deal. But maybe if, he, if he wants to get, tell you, help you with your taxes, you might <laughs> maybe maybe uh, something to give me pause. So, yeah. Okay. So while we're on content moderation, I do want to talk about the neutral point of view and the increasing number of accusations that Wikipedia, at the end of the day, leans left. And I want to before we get into that, I do want to 
say that there's obviously when you read Wikipedia, there's a culture that says you can add facts that are true and you've got a source for taking stuff out or rewriting it because you don't like it is harder. And to my mind, on these controversial pages, it produces a kind of ping pongy text in which everything bad that you say about something that some people really like and some people really hate is followed immediately, usually just after a comma, with something meant to take the sting out of it. And then with something meant to take the sting out of that, which makes it hard to read. But maybe the best you can do if you're trying to maintain, I'm not sure it's neutral so much as balanced, but I'm not going to quibble with that. If you're trying to maintain a sense that we are not taking sides, is there something better you can do? And do you agree with me that there's that ping pong problem? So what I would say is because of the collaborative editing model, you do, it's not uncommon to stumble across an entry, which is sort of oddly disjointed in various ways. A typical type of case is there's a three sentence discussion early on in the article about some issue. And then a two further sentences way down the page about the same thing. Yeah. And often what's happened there is the person who was adding it in down below didn't notice the discussion above or vice versa. And so that's just like an odd oddity. You know, I think that you, what you've described is accurate in terms of people, you know, in the process, trying to be balanced, trying to sort of accommodate old sensible points of view. Often those sections just need a really good Wikipedia to come in and rewrite it from scratch to mm-hmm. make it flow better or make it, you know, sort of more, more well-rounded. And in general, you know, one of the things that we do talk about that we want to avoid is, you know, the article about the moon doesn't say, well, some say the moon is made of rocks, some say cheese, you know, who knows, right. you right. know, because that, and we see that a fair amount in in the media, you'll see a controversial issue and they're trying to be neutral, but they end up saying, well, you know, according to these Harvard scientists, there's a problem with climate change, but this Hollywood actress disagrees. And, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> I mean, right. interesting enough, but probably that's not truly neutral. That's actually just trying to sort of come up with something, you know, so so it's complicated. And one of the interesting things about Wikipedia and about this issue is that there is no magic formula. There's no way to get to a clear presentation of pretty universally agreed upon presentation of the facts without a lot of people of goodwill really chewing on it really hard and really thoughtfully dissecting every word. I remember a great example from years ago, and I haven't looked at it recently, so I hope it hasn't degenerated into a nightmare. So they're building something in Israel. Some call it a security fence, some call it a wall. And both of those terms are very much weighted with emotional Mm -hmm. meaning. So the wall, like Berlin Wall security fence, so that sounds good, you know. We've all got security fences. And so on. And so what was great about it was a Wikipedia paragraph about that discussed in some detail about the terms that it was being called. This is what the Israelis are calling it. This is what the Palestinians are calling it and why. And on the discussion page was a huge, long, and actually really polite and very thoughtful dialogue about how can we explain this without taking a side, without implying one side or the other is wrong, but like just explain what the issue is. And it was great. And I thought, ah, now that's Wikipedia working in a very fine way. 
doesn't always go that smoothly, of course. People come in and they're emotional and they, you know, they really want to win the day on that. But uh, yeah. Somebody who was talking about what he thought was left-wing bias on Wikipedia pointed to the page on communism. And I right. did go to there. And what do we know about communism? It, it was the ideology that ruled a third of the globe throughout the 20th century and produced enormous authoritarian regimes that suppressed freedoms and killed millions and millions of people. And if you look hard enough in that article, you can find references to well, what is delicately referred to as excess mortality. Uh, <laughs> and, and But what it mostly is a lot of talk about how well, there's one kind of communism, and you know that's by one branch of the Marxist ideology, and then there's like 20 others, anarcho-communism and communal communism, and you feel as though you're in the middle of an academic paper, and then it says, oh, and this other one we were talking about, yeah, that killed a bunch of people. It did feel as though somebody who really had a Jones for communism had spent an enormous amount of time saying, well, I've got, a, I've got another aspect of communism that you probably hadn't thought of and filled it with fluff, sort of the way the, the Chinese Communist Party 50 Cent Army fills all the comments that are hostile to the, the regime with, oh, we love Xi comments until you can't find anything else. I, and so I do think there's a problem. And maybe, it's, maybe this is a particularly, I did not read the talk section. So maybe this is a particularly hard fought entry, but there is yeah. a problem. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't read the entry, so it's very hard to speak Direct, I mean, I, I must have read it at some point, but not in many years. I just went and looked. I see that the word genocide is mentioned 55 times in the article. So Okay, fair enough. It, you it, know, most of those in the sources, I think, but still. Yeah, no, I, it, what is interesting about things like this is the, you know, broad article like communism, right? So right. that's bound to be a broad overview article. And so it needs to address the variance sort of the intellectual basis and the different variants around the world and might not have the opportunity or time to get into exactly, you know, the details. But I mean, we have an article which is linked from there called Mass Killings Under Communist Regimes. Yes. And that's, and that is, is much more direct. Yeah. But uh, so you know, it, it's a hard problem just because, you know, if you think about how would you, uh, and I'm, I'm quite anti-communist myself. So I would be tempted to start in with, you know, quite a biased, definition yes. a genocidal ideology from the 20th century but but you know to be realistic you really do have to say okay right we're trying to explain communism a very broad word many variants and so on we've got to kind of introduce people and link them to all the bits and pieces you know i've had at times different cases where you will see entries that are quite biased i'm i don't know if this one would qualify but at one point there was one about Venezuela, in particular, Chavez, and this was years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and I read it and I thought, oh, well, this is ridiculous. Like, this is just, uh, and we were Over quite small at the time. Yeah. And, you know, you, you thought, oh, if I read this and I knew nothing else, I'd be out in the streets ready to vote for this guy. But actually, over time, you know, that improved and, you know, people came in and said, well, okay, hold on a second. This is clearly written by a fan and needs to be sorted out. So the other source of concern that I've heard, I mean, my assumption is that the people who work on Wikipedia on the whole are sort of part of the knowledge economy. They're 
academics or have you know a commitment to the written word and to reading and to writing and you know let's be candid that's a community that tends to lean to the left and so you got to live with that and you have to assume that there are enough people who don't that you'll get challenges to the worst kind of bias but the requirement that everything come to a trusted source means that you really have to ask who are the trusted sources and people will say the only trusted sources are sources like the New York Times or the Washington Post that have really moved left as their audience has moved left and the folks who have risen up on the right to contradict them or comment on them are you know the Daily Mail and the New York Post much more populist and much less well-respected outlets, but that doesn't mean they're not telling the truth. And so I guess I do wonder, how do you make sure that the folks you designate as trusted don't introduce a systemic bias? Yeah, so that is clearly the right way to approach the question, because Wikipedia definitely reflects what is in reliable sources. And so where we have to be really careful is defining reliable sources and making sure that we aren't doing that in a politicized way, in an unfair way. And I will mention, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the FT, The Economist, not generally considered to be raging left-wing ideologues. Well, but, but, but you know, that, yes, but those institutions are much further to the right on their opinion pages than among their reporters. And they Certainly are to the, the right in a libertarian, economic, liberal way. Uh, which is yes. quite different from being Trumpist. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think one of, you know, one of the issues is there, there was a period in time, I would argue in the 1980s, 1990s, when there was a pretty serious, I would say, intellectually rigorous defense of capitalism and the markets and sort of what, you know, the libertarian Republican sort of thing, which I think still exists, but the main discourse has become quite Trumpist. And that's problematic. I mean, to some extent, you know, as I said earlier, you know, let's say we're talking about the issue of migrants illegally entering the US. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to get to the facts and you want to present that issue in a thoughtful way. It's an issue that people are quite legitimately can have varying opinions about what should the immigration policy of any particular country be, how many people should we let in, what we should do about people who've come in contrary to the rules. And so what we would be looking for, we would want to avoid that that cheese problem I said earlier, yep. which is, you know, according to the FBI and the national whatever statistics agencies, the crime rate of illegal immigrants is X. But Donald Trump says they're all murderers and rapists. So who knows? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. Donald Trump is like someone who thinks the moon is made of cheese. So typically, we don't necessarily consider that to be a reliable source. Uh, and I'm not going to urge that you do. <laughs> yeah, well, what I would hope that we would do is take, you know, take seriously contrary points of view, but in a thoughtful way. But it's certainly, uh, you know, we see this a fair amount with criticism around, say, health issues particularly COVID and yeah. vaccines, where Wikipedia does take a very mainstream, very sort of science-based, which doesn't mean perfect, of course. And, you know, people, I love when people tell me, oh, yes, you've completely got this wrong. And then you go and you look at it. And I'm like, well, it's not that wrong. It's just you're very upset about right. some fact of reality that you don't like. 
On the other hand, it, you do have to, we as a community, we have to constantly check ourselves and think through things like, I mean, I'll give one example that I think is quite interesting is the discourse around masks, because that is one where there were definitely flip-flops from the governments around the world who first said, I remember one of the first communications we were getting don't was, don't rush out and buy masks. Right. And the reason had more to do with there might be a shortage and healthcare workers need them worse, fair enough, but it wasn't sold that. It's like, no, masks is useless. Don't, no, 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 mask everywhere you go. Anyway, and now, you know, we're starting to see, you know, more sort of thoughtful science come out about what is the efficacy of masks. It's mixed and so on. And I hope Wikipedia doesn't say anybody who doesn't wear a mask is a vaccine-denying lunatic. And instead to say, actually, it seems to help, but it's not the magic bullet. That's kind of where I think the science is today. I, I think I that's right. And it, it does show that even people we think of as, how could this not be a reliable source, have their own motivations for saying things where they're bending the truth to achieve a different goal. For sure. And I, I've been sort of outside of the Wikipedia world. I'm definitely critical because my, my belief is I trust the public. And that's a big part of what Wikipedia is. It's like, we give you the facts, we give you all sides of the story, and I trust you to sort of think it through and read and understand and make the right decision. And I would say there are definitely elements within the public health communications world who thought actually the best and most life-saving things to do is to scare the bejesus out of people, even if we're bending the facts a bit to do it. And I'm like, you know what? No, that's how you lose the trust of the public. Yeah, And no, then you and become I, I, the boy who I, cried I, wolf. And I, I think they've lost it for a big yeah. chunk of, of the world. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to ask one more set of questions because I've taken as much of your time as I promised I would take. AI. AI has many of the same characteristics. I mean, if you go to ChatGPT and say, write me a Wikipedia-style article on this topic, it will read a lot like Wikipedia. In fact, it will probably take it mostly from Wikipedia. And I guess that raises the question, is AI going to be a threat to Wikipedia? Are people going to say, well, I can get what I want without going to Wikipedia by just asking ChatGPT? And since ChatGPT can, can go and look at all of your articles, are you essentially providing the raw material for the technology that's going to displace or at least disadvantage Wikipedia? So I think that's a lot of questions all in one. Yep. So the first thing is, at least at the present time, ChatGPT, even ChatGPT4, is not good enough to write Wikipedia entries. It makes things up out of thin air. <laughs> it even makes up sources out of thin air. So it's it can amazing. be very persuasive, but just wrong. One of my favorite examples I love to play with is I asked ChatGPT, who is Kate Garvey, my wife? Mm -hmm. And she's kind of on that perfect point because she's not a famous person, but she's been in the public eye to some extent. She's she, famous adjacent. Yes, yes. Well, she, yes, she worked for Tony Blair at number 10. Yeah. She's been in the media for her work today. Anyway, it gets about half of her biography right and half of it wrong. Sometimes quite hilariously wrong because it's always plausible. Right. So it once said that she set up a nonprofit for women's empowerment in the workplace with Miriam Gonzalez, which is Nick Clegg's wife, former deputy prime minister, who we know a bit. I mean, I know Nick Clegg because he's, right. he's working for Meta and so yeah. on. Anyway, and, you know, she's like, when I showed it to her, she's like, you know, that's not implausible. Like, I can see how that might have happened. Had we met at a dinner and started talking about we could have, yep. you never know. 
it also gets who she's married to wrong every time, which is always <laughs> amusing, which is why I enjoy it. So that's just to say, at least right now, there's a real problem with ChatGPT and the accuracy of what it's doing and its failure to cite sources. I think they're working on all that you yeah. know, quite hard, so I think that will improve. And then for us, I think I'm really more interested in, okay, how can ChatGPT help us? or the broader, the large language yeah. model technology help us. And there's a few ideas out there that I think are quite interesting. So one would be, you know, have it scan through Wikipedia articles looking for contradictions, I think is a really interesting, mm-hmm. simple case. So maybe the entry on communism and the entry on mass killings under communist regimes contradict each other, as opposed to this one not covering it very well and this one covering it in some detail. And I think the community would find that very useful to sort of say, oh, here's you know, because a lot of the people who are editing Wikipedia are Wikipedians first and then subject matter interested second. Yep. And you go to Wikipedia and you think, oh, I just I feel like editing Wikipedia today, but what should I work on? And it'd be kind of nice if there was a good suggestion tool where it says, here's five things that the algorithm has found that are possibly wrong. So you can think about things like read this entry and read all the 20 sources and tell me if Wikipedia contradicts the sources. Mm-hmm. Okay, if so, that's interesting. And oh, you can yeah. imagine doing that a year ago because I, I mean, I always thought about this sort of thing, but I just thought, well, you know, the keyword matching, you could see if, you know, you could tell if the article is even about the same topic, but that's kind of the extent of the understanding you get. But now that we have this tool that can have some contextual understanding, it could be incredibly valuable at helping us find problems. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm really interested in that. And that's a task that, that AI ought to be able to do. It will look in this. It's, in it's, the- yeah, I think it's fairly clear that it's very close to being able to do that. The other idea is, you know, one of, the, one of the things is how do people access Wikipedia? So if you have a question like, why do ducks fly south for winter? Well, you know the answer to that is in Wikipedia, but where is it? It right. could be there, there's an article on ducks, there's an article on bird migration, yep. etc. And so you're gonna have to go and read the whole article and scan through and look for your answer. Or you can Im- imagine a large language model that's told only look at Wikipedia, only give me quotes from Wikipedia that can actually extract and even reword to answer your question that text. So that gives a whole new way that people might interact with this body of knowledge. Sure, they, you're basically useful. saying just train it on Wikipedia and Wikipedia only. Which yeah. I think that's already happening in with other uh, well, sources. They're, I think, they're, yeah, they're largely <laughs> training largely on Wikipedia in the first place. So, <laughs> well, there's uh, that. <laughs> so that's good. And then you know, finally, for us, you know, we we can think about the question both from the point of view of our mission, but also in a much more practical perspective. So, from the point of view of our mission, it's free knowledge for everyone in every language. And as long as we're contributing to that and it's being our knowledge is being reused, and you know, if you ask Siri a question or Amazon Alexa a question, we're happy. Like we're the infrastructure of the world, and that's what our volunteers are here for, is to give this gift to the world and all the knowledge. From the point of view of the Wikimedia Foundation and the website and the business model, which is we're a charity and we ask people quite famously on the website to donate money from time to time, we always have this question of, okay, but look, if people are using other tools in other places, and they have no idea that it's only possible because of the hard work of our volunteers, and it's only possible because the Wikimedia Foundation continues to run the projects, and they stop donating money, that could be a problem. 
So far, we haven't had that right. issue. We worried about it in the early days. I used to talk about it a fair amount until our data science team said, you should probably stop talking about that because we don't think it's true. But I call it the how old is Tom Cruise problem. So 15 years ago, if you went to Google and typed, how old is Tom Cruise? Well, of course, Google had no idea, but it would link you to Wikipedia as the first link. And now it now, just extracts it. Yeah, now you say, how old is Tom Cruise? And it tells you down to the day how old he is. However, at the same time, on the right-hand side, they've got their knowledge graph with all the links, and yep. most of those are to Wikipedia. The first link is still going to be Wikipedia. The part at the top that tells his birthday will often say source Wikipedia. And so we haven't seen a decline in traffic from Google or other search engines based on the, their improving their ability to answer questions directly. But that's not a guarantee that will be the case in the future. I mean, certainly we touched on voice assistance. Just recently, Amazon Alexa started to say, according to Wikipedia, blah, 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 whereas she used to just read Wikipedia to you. Okay. So that's helpful because yes. at least people know. And then later when they do see a banner saying Wikipedia, they're like, oh yeah, Wikipedia, like the world needs that. I should chip in a little bit of money. So I have a, an idea in the Richard Stallman category. I would be tempted to say to these large language model trainers, we're offering this to you for free, but if you take it for free, you need to give it away for free. And if you're not going to give it away for free, then maybe you ought to be making a contribution. Yeah. So, that, I mean, legally, there's a lot of lot to unpack there. So everything that we publish, I mean, with a few exceptions, but in general, the bulk of Wikipedia is under Creative Commons attribution share-alike license. So attribution meaning they have you have to, to say. give a link back. Uh, share-alike, meaning well, you have to make your derivative work available as well under a free license. But where that gets complicated is that that's all based on copyright law. Facts are not copyrightable. Right. Um, our particular expression of the facts is copyrightable. Then there's the further emerging question of who owns the copyright, if anyone, for text generated by OpenAI? And I think the earliest precedents say machine-generated text is not under copyright at all, which if that's where we end up, I actually consider that a big win for free knowledge because I'm suddenly, with you. Yeah. you know, and that's, you know, it, it's an interesting, hard problem. And then I think the dark path we could go down that I think would be quite devastating for Wikipedia, and you already hear some rumblings from academic publishers which is moving somehow to a model that says that facts themselves should be copyrightable. Like uh, we no, they, created just, these facts. And, they're so rapacious and so insatiable. <laughs> yeah, 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 they are. And that would be a disaster for Wikipedia because suddenly, you know, just as OpenAI, you know, they come for OpenAI saying, oh, you only know the answer to this science question because you read it in a scientific journal. Then they come to Wikipedia next and say, oh, the only reason your volunteers were able to write this encyclopedia article is they read yeah. our books. And it's like, well, now we're down a really dark path that copyright of copyright overreach that's broader than anything anybody's ever considered. I don't think we're going to go there, but I do suspect we're going to have to have that debate at some point. Okay. I agree with you. And that, that means you really are going to have to spend the next 23 years guiding Wikipedia through all of these additional oh, yeah. troubles. And, you know, I just, I want to stop and celebrate your willingness to do that instead of you know, of becoming a billionaire and having the biggest boat in London. So I, I congratulations. Any last thing you want to tell uh, listeners about your life or Wikipedia's future? No, I mean, I, I live in London and I enjoy it very much. And, you know, everything, everything's good. I mean, I think for Wikipedia, I think one of the main things is we try to take seriously the idea of long term. 
So we run the organization a very fiscally conservative way. We try to put aside a little money every year. We have a separate endowment fund that we've been building up over time. And part of the reason is in order to keep Wikipedia safe, we need to think that who knows what we might need to spend money on in the future, a big opportunity or big threat. There's no plans to do anything like this, but it's not hard to imagine in a year's time, us saying, you know what, we actually do need to train our own large language model on the Wikipedia corpus itself. So we're going to need to hire a lot of really expensive AI engineers, and we're going to have to run a huge computer project to do that. And it's going to cost $20 million. We're not planning to do that today, but <laughs> it's not hard to imagine a world where we say, you know what, actually tech is changing quite quickly, and we better keep up. Otherwise, things unravel. So, so and I have to say, all the companies that built their models on Wikipedia ought to be volunteering some of their compute for you if you decide to do yes. Well, they're generally, they're all very friendly with us. So yes. they appreciate you know, whether they come through with some donations, that'd be good. So. Okay. Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia. This was a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. Lovely. I could go very, on for like another couple it, of hours, yeah. but it's been a lot of fun. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks Thank a lot. Thanks again to Jimmy Wales. For those who are listening, if you're interested in podcasting and want to get into the field by doing some sound editing, we are hiring an intern to do that. So send your CV or bio to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us comments, rude remarks, feedback, you can send them to the same email address. Or if you want them immortalized, you can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. And if we find it entertainingly abusive, we'll read it on the air. Thanks to all of you. This has been episode 460 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Internet hippies.